Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome once again to our study uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, tonight, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and the title of our study is The Moral Man. Now, before we get started, I want to give a, a quick note about Paul and his writing style, because he's going to make a change here in, in chapter 2. He's going to switch over uh, from chapter 1. In chapter 2, he's going to switch over to an ancient literary style called diatribe. Now, diatribe is where the author kind of carries on this uh, imaginary conversation with a second person. It could be like an opponent, or it could be a student, or, or something like that. Now, a couple things about this literary style, so you'll be aware of it. The first per thing is that it uses what's called second person singular. So let me explain what I mean. Did you notice in chapter 1, at the very end, when Paul is, is talking about the, the mass of humanity, he talks about it in third person. He says, they are without excuse. They knew God. They did not glorify him. They become fools. Everything is in third person. But when you come to chapter 2, he changes. He switches to what's called a diatribe style, and everything is in uh, the second person. So now he's talking about you have no excuse. You who judge. You condemn yourself. And so that's one clue that he's changing styles. The second clue that he's changing style here is this uh, diatribe literary style always anticipates objections. Now, I've mentioned this before that in the years prior to writing Romans, Paul has traveled all over the Mediterranean. Uh, he's preached to kings, he's preached to uh, Roman generals, he's preached to religious Jews and pagan Gentiles, to philosophers and farmers and, and fishermen. He's heard every objection, every question uh, that anybody could, could raise about the gospel. So what he's doing in this diatribe style is he anticipates these objections because he's heard them for, for years now. So we're going to see this right off the bat in, in chapter 2. So let's jump right into it. Now, you're going to recall what was said at the end of chapter 1. At the very end of chapter 1, Paul says that God uh, gave them up uh, or gave them over to a debased mind to do things that they shouldn't do. And then he goes into a list, uh, sexual immorality, uh, maliciousness, murder, deceit, on and on and, and on. Now, remember, this is a letter that's going to be read by people. And Paul knows that when people read this letter and they come to the end of chapter 1, they're going to have an objection. And their objection is going to be this. Well, now, wait a minute, Paul. That's not me, that's them. That's not me, that's them. After all, I believe in God. I'm religious, I'm spiritual. I don't do those things. I'm not full of murder and strife and, and all of that evil stuff. I'm a, I'm a good person. Now see, this is the objection that Paul is going to be dealing with here in chapter 2. What about the good people? What about the good people? What about people who outwardly aren't murderers and thieves and fornicators and homosexuals? What about people who are good, moral people? What about those people, Paul? You see, those people would probably agree with Paul in chapter 1. As he's talking through that list, they'd be like, Amen, Paul, we, we agree with you, man. Them some bad people. You see, even in Paul's day, there were people like this. 
There was a guy who lived at the exact same time as Paul. His name was Seneca. He was a a Roman Stoic or a Roman philosopher. And he was a a very virtuous, a very uh, moral uh, man. And he wrote a lot. And uh, he was kind of seen as the conscience, if you will, of Roman society. And Seneca might have read Romans 1 and he would have said, you know what, Paul, you are dead on. You, I, I, you are perfectly right about the great mass of, of humanity when you pass judgment on them. But now Paul, he would have said, there are other people like me who hate those types of behaviors as much as, as you do. In fact, Seneca wrote so effectively that later Christian people would, would, would actually call him our own Seneca, like he was one of us. It reminds me, and by the way, there's always been this situation. We still have it today. I was thinking while I was putting this lesson together about men like Ben Shapiro. Uh, ben Shapiro uh, can, can write, and I've read many of his articles, and, and uh, he's, a, he's a virtuous, seems to be a virtuous man, and a, a man of integrity, and a man of, of character, and, and uh, he espouses a lot of the values maybe that I espouse. But you see, like Seneca, they're not Christians. They may be virtuous men. They may be men of character and integrity, but they're not believers in in Jesus Christ. Now, in Paul's day, the vast amount of people that you could kind of put into that column would have been religious Jews. In our day, it kind of goes across the board. It's people in our churches um, that are are people of integrity. They're, They're moral people. Uh, or it could be religious non-believers like Mormons. Mormons are, are, are people of integrity. They got, they got character. They seem to be very moral, moral people, but they're not believers. Or, or it could be people like Uncle Bob and Aunt Sarah. Uncle Bob and Aunt Sarah are good people. They don't go to church. They don't profess any kind of faith in Christ. But you know what? They're just nice people. They're good people. They, they pay their taxes. They obey the law. They, they believe in, in morality. It could be people like them. You see, all of these people see themselves as good people. They all see themselves as different from those people in, in Romans 1. And because of that, they don't think they'll be judged like them. So these are the people that Paul is going to address here in in chapter 2. So let's see how he does it. Now what he's going to do is he wants us to see that these moral people, these good people, virtuous people, apart from Jesus Christ, they're not Christians. They're not going to be saved. And they, just like the people of Romans 1, are without excuse. Now he's going to give us three reasons why this is so. Let's look at reason number one. He shows us this in in, uh, verse 1. He says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. In whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. You see, what Paul is saying is that if if you have a standard that you use to judge other people, just having that standard proves that you know the truth. I was thinking this week about uh, I was seeing some people who are not believers. In fact, they don't even believe in God, but yet they accuse other people of racism. Well, the very fact that they believe racism is wrong, the, the very fact that they have that standard proves that they know it's wrong. It proves that they have a standard of truth within themselves and they will be judged by that very 
standard. Reason number two that moral people have no excuse. Paul says this. Let's read verse one again. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, immediately, whoever was reading this would say, Whoa, 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 wait just a minute, Paul. Now, you, I was with you up to now, but you're wrong there. You see, I don't do those things. I'm not committing those sins. That's not me. And by the way, more than likely, every single person listening to this lesson right now is thinking exactly the same thing. I, I'm not a murderer. I haven't murdered anyone. But you see, Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, which is true. But Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You may say, well, I, I'm not an, an adulterer. And Jesus said, well, you've heard it said of old, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But, but I'm a good person. Jesus said, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, by the way, who were the outwardly were the most righteous people to ever live. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you will no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, moral people are the hardest people to reach. Not only do they think they're better than other people, you know, sometimes they really are better than other people if you only look at the outside. You see, good people have made a fatal mistake in their thinking. First thing they've made a mistake in is they don't understand the requirements of God's law, that God's law looks at the inside, not just the outside. Jesus said to those same Pharisees, on the outside you're whitewashed tombs, you're all painted up and pretty, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You see, what matters is, is the heart. And the second mistake that these, quote, good people make is they judge themselves against other people. I'm better than them. I'm not like them. But see, God doesn't judge that way. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, you need to be perfect just as your Father is perfect. See, God judges us against himself, not against other people. Reason number three, that moral people have no excuse Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Or do you think lightly, Paul says, of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Here's the reason. Paul says, you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and his patience. Hey, have you ever noticed that the basic attitude of people today about God is that he seems to be harsh and cruel. You know, whether it's an earthquake in Haiti or a, a tsunami in Thailand that kills thousands of people, or, or whether it's a car wreck that kills one, we hear it all the time. What, what kind of God is this? What, what kind of God made this, made this world where there's all this pain and loss and, and, and suffering? Richard Dawkins, in his book, the God delusion, he just, he just laid it out there. and He said what a, what a lot of people in our culture think. He said this, God is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, 
a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I don't know about Richard Dawkins. I know one thing I know about him, he likes big words, right? But here's the thing. Today's scripture tells us that that could be, nothing could be further from the truth. Paul said he is rich in kindness. He's rich in tolerance. He's rich in patience. So here's my question. How can there be such a disconnect? How can there be such a disconnect between who God really is and how the world sees him? He really is good and kind and merciful. And yet, they seem as this some kind of cruel and harsh bully. Well, here's the reason. It's because we don't understand the seriousness of our sin. You see, listen to me now. The fact is, we all live past the point of justice. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. If God gave us justice, if he gave us what we deserve, we'd be gone after the very first sin because only one sin deserves death. He should take us out with one sin, but he doesn't do that. A.W. Pink said this, How wondrous God's patience is with the world. On every side, people are sinning with a high hand. The divine law is trampled underfoot, and God himself is openly despised. It is truly amazing that he doesn't instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy him. Whenever I think about this subject or I'm teaching on this subject, of God's patience and God's goodness. I'm always brought back to a guy by the name of Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was an admitted atheist, and, and he wasn't just an atheist. He tried to convince other people to be an atheist. Um, he was born in 1872, and he died in 1970. Now, do the math. He was 98 years old. How patient God was with him. How kind God was for him for 98 years trying to teach people there's no God and God just let it go and he let it go and he let it go. How good and patient he was with, with Bertrand Russell. Nehemiah 9.17 says this, talking about the Jewish people, they refused to obey and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. You see, the Jews of Nehemiah's day took God's goodness for granted, and we're still doing the exact same thing today. We, we, we live in this world with all these beautiful things, love and beauty and friendship and food and nature and pleasures, and, and we live in this world and we live under the mercy and the kindness of God every single day. A God who literally blesses us while he's withholding judgment. In fact, can I tell you, we lived there so long and so comfortably that not only do we get used to it, we start to think that we deserve it. There, there's, a, there's a saying that we have, familiarity breeds contempt. The idea is you can take somebody that lives in a paradise somewhere beautiful and they'll live there so long that after a while they don't even see it. Well, see, that's what's happened to us. The mercy of God has become so commonplace that we don't even see that it's all around us. We get so used to sinning and getting away with it. And by the way, when justice finally does appear, we don't even recognize it. 
Instead, all we can see is something that we consider harsh and, and unjust, almost arbitrary. We're like, we're like spoiled children in that way. Listen, if you spoil a child long enough, they'll start to believe that they deserve everything they get. They won't see you as a loving parent, as a benevolent parent. They'll, they'll start seeing themselves as deserving all of this. And by the way, if you try to change and discipline that spoiled child, they will be literally shocked and they'll blame you. They'll say there's something wrong with you. They can't even see the wrong in themselves. It's exactly what we do with our Heavenly Father. Let's be honest. We would never in a million years tolerate what God tolerates. We would never in a million years tolerate the rebellion and the insubordination that He tolerates. He is far more merciful than we are now. Here's my question, why? Why does he do it? Why does he just let this stuff go on and on? Well, verse 4 told us, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. You see, God patiently waits, and he waits, and he waits. And while he's waiting, he's just pouring out blessings on even people who hate him. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. It rains on the good and the bad. Why? So that perhaps in some way, in some way, they'll one day realize how good he is and they'll turn from their rebellion, turn from their insubordination, turn from their mutiny and their treason, and they'll turn to him. Listen, do you see how messed up this world is? People are offended at God whenever a tragedy happens. Let me tell you, it's God who should be offended. It's God who should be offended. We, we don't give him any credit for the good. And we try to put all the blame on him when something happens that's, that's out of the norm for our comfortable life. William Gurnall in 1660 said this, When I consider how the goodness of God is abused by the greatest part of mankind, I cannot but be of the mind that says the greatest miracle in this world is God's patience and bounty to an ungrateful world. You see, each one of us is living under mercy. Each one of us is living under extended kindness and goodness. Each one of us is living, we get all that from an infinitely holy God who absolutely hates sin, but he patiently tolerates us in order that someday, some way, somehow, we might recognize his mercy and recognize his goodness and recognize his kindness and turn to him. See, your life is a gift every month, every day, Every, every year, every breath you take is a merciful gift from a holy God. There's not a single one of us who knows when death will come to our door. God is patient and God is good. And he may not bring that wrath soon, but according to Romans, he will bring that wrath finally. And when he does, woe unto the man or woman who does not know the Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for chapter 2. We thank you for this wonderful message. And Father, I pray if there's anybody out there under the sound of my voice who, who falls under this uh, uh, heading of the moral man or the moral woman, they got good character, they're virtuous, they're people of integrity, yet they know down deep in their heart that they don't know you, they don't have a relationship with you. And they've been getting along thinking, well, I'm good enough, I'm not like them. God, somehow, some way, just use this message, use your word to show them, to shine a light that that's not good enough. For all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. We all fall short of the standard that God has set. There's only one way to be made right, and that is to put our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, not in our own virtue, not in our own integrity, not in our own character, not in anything of us, but only in Him. God, let that be done. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.